Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. Uh, it's another one of those international editions of Citizen D podcasts. Uh, today uh, it's the 13th of May, but you're listening to this on the 15th of June. Uh, don't worry, uh, we're going to talk about a subject very uh, interesting and very important in, in, in the global and in the local sphere. Um, with us today is Alexandrine uh, Royer. Um, she's an educational program manager at the Montreal AI Ethics Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to AI ethics literacy. Um, so, welcome, Alexandrine. Um, the topic of this podcast is ghost work. Uh, let's start there. And can you give a brief intro into the subject? Hi, yes, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, when it comes to ghost works, there's two different types that are generally recognized. There's the type that falls into uh, micro work, which is the type of task you'll find on platforms such as Amazon's MTurk. And these tend to be very clerical in nature, repetitive small tasks such as identifying photos, um, labeling words, um, content monitoring, checking sentences and things like that. And then you have another form of work, which is more macro work that you can find on uh, platforms such as Fiverr. And these are sort of longer term contracts. A lot of it can be uh, graphic design in nature, um, copywriting, different types. So these tend to be um, on a longer duration, I guess, compared to the micro work tasks, which are very quick and repetitive in nature. Mm-hmm. Why is this such a hot topic right now or what are the, let's say, political aspects of of ghost work and and, uh, its consequences? Um, I think, well, first of all, the pandemic, I think, has definitely shed a light um, because a lot of people have been turning to ghost work as an alternative source of income. So platforms um, such as Amazon's MTurk have been around for quite a while. Um, but I think with the publication of Mary Gray's um, ghost work that happened in 2019, I believe, um, there was a lot of attention in the AI ethics space that suddenly zeroed in because um, I don't think people were quite aware of what ghost work entail until um, this year really and last year uh, people are beginning to sort of sense it um, there's been a lot more focus on sort of platform labor that's um, deliveroos the ubers the sort of delivery service workers um, have drawn a bit more attention but the very digital platform work-based things um, haven't necessarily been as uh, reported on in the media and so i think um, because people are using this um, more and more as a form of side hustle and a form of side income, especially when a lot of people's employment was precarious in the last year. I think the media has finally started to sort of zero in, as well as the AI ethics community has sort of waken up to uh, the issues involved in ghost work. Mm. Can you can you comment on the issue of, let's say, the global aspect of these platforms? So you mentioned Deliveroo, you mentioned Uber, Amazon. These are all platforms that at the same time exist within one or maybe two um, legal frameworks. So their headquarters are usually based in in some um, type of, let's say, the US or or in in uh, in Europe. But they they span their their influences is worldwide. Mm -hmm. How does that affect uh, the conversation or the attempts of trying to 
figure out what's what or figure out how to how to regulate uh, their practices in terms of ghost work yeah i mean, evidently it's difficult because you're confronting um different regulatory and legal systems as well um and just uber drivers have different legal standing in different parts of the world uh when it comes to sort of platform-based work that's the micro work or the macro work. Um, what makes it difficult is that um, these companies sort of control the forms of remuneration. Um, so unless you're, for, I keep going back to Amazon Turk, but it's one of the biggest mm. ones. But for example, um, if you're working elsewhere in the world, um, how Amazon Turk decided to compensate its workers is by giving sort of Amazon vouchers. So if you're in a country and you're trying to do these sort of clerical tasks and you don't necessarily have a US bank account, or nor does Amazon necessarily provide services for you, um, well, you're sort of stuck without receiving any form of payment. So it's not just the, the way these platforms are regulated, but also how they dole out um, compensation for these and when it comes to ghost work you're sort of confronted um, the very platform based um, you're sort of confronted with a global pool of laborers so when you're trying to find tasks to do on um, let's say um, Upwork or MTurk well it's not just you're not just in competition with people within your country or um, your or even your continent it's global so um, you know you might be bidding against somebody who's in India somebody who's in the Philippines and who um, can maybe have afford to do these tasks for less than you would necessarily accept so it's high because living wages are very different and very varied across the world but it's sort of a race to the bottom when it comes to these bidding wars that happens on these global platforms mm. so it is definitely a challenge um, in terms of regulating it mm. I, I guess cheap labor also explains the the reasons behind the the success of of these platforms right yeah, absolutely. And it's um, there's not necessarily uh, a benchmark or a minimum that's uh, always guaranteed for these workers. So it is really tempting um, for, you know, clients to sort of incentivize um, these workers to bid for the lowest price possible. And there's not necessarily always protection either um, against, um, you know, an employer not paying or paying uh, the full amount or, um, you know, these workers in very extremely precarious positions. And oftentimes, because they, they're evaluated based on a ranking, um, and it's so important for them to keep that five-star ranking, that sometimes I'll have incidents of workers um, agreeing to pay back the client because they're so afraid of having a negative impact on their ranking that will then um, sort of put their next job opportunities, um, will impact their next job opportunities and unless they have that perfect score. So it's really hard for these workers um, to be properly compensated and they're very much um, vulnerable to sort of the whims of whoever they're working for. Mm. There's also one one question about geography, right? So mm -hmm. every time or the argument that comes up uh, almost all the time when discussing platform labor or ghost work is that, oh, this is a third world problem. We in, let's say, the EU or in Canada or in US, we are on the receiving end of the benefits, right? Mm -hmm. We don't feel any any negative uh, any negative effect of this of these platforms and ghost work. But is that actually the case or are platforms, let's say, hurting the economy even in, let's say, the, the more developed countries? Absolutely. Um, you know, the biggest pool of 
Amazon mTurk workers is actually in the US. Um, so it's definitely a global issue um, in the sense of um, it's definitely affecting people um, who are in precarious financial situations in you know countries you typically recognize as being um, developed, such as you know the United Kingdom, Canada, where I'm from, um, the United States. Um, a lot of people who sort of fall into the cracks of um, welfare systems who want the advantages of working at home either because um, you know they they've lost their job or um, they need to take care of somebody they have dependents they sort of become attracted to these types of platform work um, which you know doesn't necessarily makes it very hard for them to reach a good standard of living um, because these tasks are so underpaid so it's definitely an issue and especially in the US definitely um, uh, with the pandemic, um, it was hard for people to claim um, sort of unemployment benefits in the system. Um, Alexandra Ravenel did a really interesting uh, study about the gig economy during the pandemic in New York City and how um, because these unemployment offices were so overworked um, and it was, you know, people had to wait for days and days before they can even get somebody on the phone. Um, these people were kind of left straddled with no income, had no choice but to turn to this type of gig work, platform labor, um, and even just the discourses about, you know, um, being a self-reliant um, person and the shame that sort of around, that surrounds claiming benefits. So definitely in the US, you're, um, you're seeing a lot of issues uh, surrounding gig work and um, a lot of social disparities as well. And it's mm -hmm. also, um, I think people assume that um, these gig workers are, are necessarily um, as educated as they are. There's a lot of people who have master's degrees who engage in gig work because it's been hard to find a job following graduation. So you have an incredibly diverse pool of people within different countries, uh, whether it's income, like education and socioeconomic background, and also globally, um, it's also incredibly diverse. So I think it'd be a mistake to just categorize the gig worker as being from a particular um, background or geographic area. It's really mm. uh, much more of a global phenomenon. Mm. So, so you mentioned the pandemic and yeah. the, the effect it had on, on gig workers uh, or the, the whole gig economy. But at the same time, we, we could see or we saw some attempts of, on one side, the rise of or the attempts of rise of the syndicates within Amazon and, and other, uh, let's say, major platforms. And on the other hand, we've seen uh, several attempts of, um, let's say, the... Uh, the, the, the legal, not the legalization, but the, the the attempts of regulators to to try and and push back against the the let's say the rising tide of of platforms. Um, how do you think those um, those attempts, let's say the first, I want to talk about the syndicates, will um, will um, let's say evolve in in the future. We've seen that, you know, the Amazon syndicate attempt currently is not, uh, let's say, doing very well. But is this uh, a step in the right direction? Um, definitely. I mean, I can't speak for sure about what's going to be the impact of the syndicates. Um, I'm certainly hopeful. Um, and there's been a lot of collective organization, even among gig workers themselves. There's a lot of Reddit forums where 
gig workers try to share tips and tricks on how to sort of game the system to their advantage and, you know, share information about um, how to sort of collectively organize. But because it's such a big pool of workers um, and some of them don't necessarily want to, you know, risk hurting their income, it is quite hard to collectively organize when it comes to really sort of mTurk and that kind of micro work platform based work. Um, there's been slightly more, um, well, we've seen more just on behalf of uh, Uber drivers and uh, ride, uh, other rideshare delivery um, drivers as well. Um, we've seen a bit more because it, it seems to be uh, easier to organize, but when you have um, you know, people um, who are stationed all across the world doing the type of work on Unturk, um, collective organization is quite difficult. And the other big issue is that um, regulators don't necessarily understand how this type of work operates and how it functions. And um, there's even like within, you know, the, the AI ethics community in general, we're still trying to sort of figure out how these systems kind of interconnect. So how does some a worker doing a task in one part of the world sort of correlate back into different system designs that are stationed elsewhere? So there's also definitely a knowledge gap um, within the AI and policy and governmental um, regulatory community as to really understanding how these systems kind of operate um, because a lot of them do deploy forms of algorithmic management that are yet to be uh, fully understood. So, um, yeah, there, it's not just um, understanding the workers' conditions, but also the algorithms behind them that kind of dictate that as well. Before I move on to Uber, I want to I wanna ask a follow-up question uh, related to the, the lack of understanding. So mm -hmm. what, in your, um, in your opinion, would be some of the reasons for this? for this lack between either the regulators, between the workers themselves, between the, let's say, the general society? Um, I think, well, um, probably um, the lack of media attention um, towards these forms of work, which now we're seeing a lot more coming out on it. So that's been quite helpful. And I think when it comes to um, these systems, a lot of them, there is this kind of black box phenomenon. You don't necessarily understand how, uh, let's say, on Upwork, uh, employee ratings operate, so, um, and how tasks are distributed. So what does it mean, like, why does one person have more tasks appear within their task list than another person? So a lot of it is the black box effects of these algorithms, which, um, you know, assign these tasks um, and recruit these workers that we don't necessarily understand, um, or that you know regulators don't understand either. And I think it's also just the nature of the work because a lot of it does not fit within you know conventional no no, no no sorry my God notions <laughs> of uh, labor. So what usually falls under um, international? Well, the International Labor Organization has started to pay attention to these different types of labor, but because you don't have necessarily a set hour, it's harder to sort of assess, you know, who's working part-time, who's working full-time, um, what kind of social benefits do they get to claim, what's the responsibility of the employer, what's the responsibility of the client. Um, so a lot of it, um, there hasn't been, you know, a formal stance taken. Let's say, is it, um, you know, Amazon Turk that needs to, um, if clients are advertising um, tasks on Amazon Turk, um, who falls the who on who falls the responsibility if 
the the worker falls sick? Um, is it the client that pays? Is it the platform that pays? Mm -hmm. There's not necessarily a clear understanding yet of, you know, what with who the responsibility lies for these protections for these workers. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just because it is still quite new. I think it's the novelty of it, mm -hmm. and it's even just you know our typical conceptions of time. So. Um, I think people don't necessarily understand that there's a lot of time spent just waiting for tasks to appear. And so um, people are sort of glued onto their computer or glued to their phone just waiting for, you know, um, an order for uh, Foodora to pop up or um, a request for a ride to pop up on Uber or a request for a task on Fiverr and such and um, that time isn't necessarily compensated but if you work in like let's say here in a store um, you, you don't necessarily wait until the first clients to come in before you start paying your employees you know mm -hmm. they're they're paid from the moment they start their shift and so that's why a lot of, I think like that's an important element to sort of the time spent waiting for these workers that goes uncompensated and um, that should be recognized by governmental regulation um, and by the platform themselves as constituting, you know, working time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if, if uh, I can move on to, to a particular case of, of Uber. So uh, on one side, we've seen in, in 2020 and in 2021, a lot of countries in US or a lot of cities or uh, regions in the US in, in the European Union uh, trying to act against the company, trying to uh, regulate it uh, as, a, as an ordinary, so to speak, um, taxi company. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've seen Uber moving further, uh, further to, the, to the east, uh, let's say the, the central or, or eastern Europe where the regulators or the, the governments are still, so it seems uh, they're still uh, welcoming Uber with, with open arms, with, uh, with friendly um, regulatory framework and so on. Uh, can you, if you were in a position of, of telling, uh, telling, let's say the Slovenian government or, or uh, the governments who are now trying to, to bring Uber into their countries, why is this, let's say, such a bad idea or why is this an idea that was maybe interesting, let's say, five, ten years ago, but is now, you know, completely something that's not that's not, I guess you could call it relevant anymore. Um, I think that's a pretty interesting question, just as in, like in terms of full transparency and disclosure, I don't necessarily focus on Uber as much um, in terms of like the research I do. Um, so I'm not as familiar as with it as other forms of uh, platform-based labor. Um, but I think it really is dependent on the context. So just speaking from back home um, in Quebec, the province where I reside, um, there's a lot of tensions with um, local taxi drivers who have to, taxi permits are incredibly expensive and oftentimes an individual driver cannot afford it so has to work under a collective. So the introduction of Uber totally disbalanced this kind of existing system and a lot of taxi drivers didn't, couldn't necessarily afford to uh, reduce their costs or their employers didn't necessarily want to reduce their cost of service so it was definitely very hard to compete with uh, Uber on the market. So I guess it depends on the existing sort of taxi system that you have. But um, 
the changes that it will create in terms of um, already existing drivers and the sort of loss of income or loss of wages that they'll face. Um, and you know, the, the cost of even Uber drivers, sort of when it begins, it can be quite profitable, but prices tend to decrease after a while. And mm -hmm. so after that, these Uber drivers are sort of confronted with, you know, the cost of maintenance, the cost of um, gas, the cost of all these other associated costs like sort of start to build up um, that, you know, a lot of Uber workers, um, if you've read the book Uberland, which I really recommend, um, it's uh, really good. And it sort of touches on these issues of, you know, all the sort of um, other labor that goes into that you don't necessarily see that these Uber drivers confront. And once again, that ranking system can really have a detrimental effect on these the emotional and psychological well-being of these Uber drivers um, who are just like constantly under pressure to deliver, you know, a certain um, to a certain standard and a certain performance. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to not only not only for re for government perspective, you know, how to regulate Uber drivers, which category do they fall in, which social protections do they receive? Because the intent of Uber, the company is really, you know, to sort of excuse itself from the most responsibility towards these drivers. So there's no such thing as a paid sick day or paid leave or anything like that. So when it comes to not only disrupting the local taxi economy, it's also how do you sort of introduce these systems if you want to in a way that's actually going to be, um, you know, uh, good working conditions for these drivers who do decide to take up uh, Uber as either a source of full income or just side income as well. Mm. One final subject I want to I want to touch upon uh, since you're uh, active in the AI ethics department, so to say, um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion about, um, let's say, personal and communal responsibility for these, let's say, systems, but also for these uh, trends that are affecting uh, uh, global or, or societal societal system in a, in a particular part of the world. So there's on one hand the, the the good old mantra of personal responsibility where everybody's responsible for their own uh, for their own good or for their own behavior and at the same time we're seeing that that's not enough or that that doesn't solve the problem right because it creates sort of a divide between people who as you said understand or are basically smarter and people who who don't understand who who don't see the problem or who don't uh, necessarily see or and feel the effects of these systems. So, in in your in your um, in your thought, what would be, uh, let's say, the best way to head forward, trying to either regulate uh, artificial intelligence, either uh, make it uh, make it useful and not too uh, over encompassing, and who should who should let's say lead the 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 fight or or the progress towards a more more sustainable uh, information society. Um, that's a pretty um, <laughs> that's a very big question. <laughs> Would you mind rephrasing it slightly? I'm not sure I fully understand. Um... So so it's basically I, I I we we constantly have this debate about personal responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. uh, let's yep. say the GDPR, other other legal frameworks yep. put all the power into the hands of of the individual, mm -hmm. right? So you're yep. responsible for taking care of your own data, mm -hmm. of your own uh, of your own things, and at the same time we see that that's not really effective because we're not 
all as smart or as active mm-hmm. as the the rest of the people to handle that in a in a in a useful manner mm-hmm. so is there a way to maybe rethink this uh, this uh, every man for himself premise to mm-hmm. to basically solve or try it and and usefully solve all these issues that are popping up be it ghost work be it uh, mm-hmm. data trade-offs be it privacy security and so on mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um i think because there's nobody who's necessarily absolved from any of these systems you know when i do a search on google or when i'm search- scrolling through facebook there's a content moderator out there that's been subcontracted that's making sure that what i see on my screen is correctly identified or that i'm not running into poor content so i think people don't realize how much you know what they do on a daily basis or when they're just scrolling through the internet how much of that is also um you know, controlled by ghost works that are sort of scattered across the globe. So I don't think anybody can really be in a position and say that doesn't impact me. Um, I think if you use the Internet, well, you're likely um, to be, you know, uh, interacting with a, a ghost worker somehow down the, down the long chain of command. And I think one of the criticisms that have often been raised about um, the GDPR is that even when you're, you know, trying to control your privacy, just the terms and conditions, if you want to fully get through them, it'll take you like a year. And so, Mm. you know, it's not necessarily on, um, although like I really encourage everyone to be informed and to be sort of cognizant, um, I don't think it's necessarily fair to place the burden entirely on citizens themselves to sort of monitor uh, their behavior online. Also, it won't necessarily... um, you know, unless you're joining these uh, syndicates or unions, they won't necessarily make a dramatic effect. I think it's really up to governments to sort of, um, you know, take down these big tech companies that are a lot of times getting away with it, um, you know, with horrible, you, we've all heard of the, the awful working conditions for Amazon or even Uber. Um, and I think it's going to take not just uh, individual country by country regulation, but it's definitely going to have to take um, the, a form of collaboration on a much larger scale. And even when it comes to down to these engineers that are developing these algorithms and these systems, um, I think it's hard when you're sort of very focused on like a coding task to sort of see the more holistic picture of how is the system you're developing going to um, affect workers down the line. You don't necessarily see it. So I think it's really important and you know we we sort of say this all the time in the um, AI ethics community to have a very like multidisciplinary and holistic perspective on it. So not just necessarily have people um, that are very knowledgeable in terms of tech, but also people, sociologists or, um, you know, political scientists and all that to get involved in sort of understanding, um, you know, the the repercussions of this changing platform economy. Um, but yeah, it's definitely up to, to governments to act and definitely to act in collaborative manners um, mm. as this is, um, you know, and a global issue. And, and one final question, you've mentioned the, the multidisciplinary approach to solving this issue. So connecting uh, social sciences, uh, programmers, developers, legal experts mm-hmm. and stuff. Do you see that happening in practice, maybe from your own experience or from, from the places you, you're active in? Do you see that, that multidisciplinary approach uh, actually happening in real world? Or is it still a, a techies game where everybody else should just take a seat and wait for the programmer to, to finish? Mm. 
I mean, I think um, there's definitely been a lot more of an awareness on the tech community that they can't necessarily predict these problems on their own. Um, and so at least where I work at the Montreal AI Ethics um, Institute back in Montreal, um, we're very much a multidisciplinary team. And I do think um, that the, the AI ethics space or the AI space in general is starting starting to definitely uh, realize and sort of understand that there needs to be a lot more careful consideration of the tech that they're putting out. And ethics has started to be a big theme of uh, big ML and AI conferences globally. Um, so we're definitely starting to see a change. I think the thing afterwards is um, if these companies are willing to listen. So, um, you know, Google fired a lot of its leading AI ethics ethicists. Um, so um, there's also then, you know, how do we ensure that we keep um, these big tech companies accountable and that they really listen to the advice that's provided for them um, by social scientists or people in the non-tech domain? Mm -hmm. And I, one final comment, I, I often compare, um, let's say, the attempts or the, the field of AI with the field of uh, ecology or environmental protection. So mm -hmm. what happens is that you, you at some point get a split between, let's say, the more Western or let's say the US, Canada and, and Europe countries, which are very um, progressive in terms of, let's say, AI ethics and the respectability of, of uh, human rights in, in this regard. But at the same time, you see these companies moving the work and maybe we can we can we can uh, connect everything back to to the original idea of ghost work. You know, they they move out the the work they do into countries that are not on the map of AI mm -hmm. ethics community. So let's say Philippines, China and India, for example. Do you see that as a problem or do you see that as a possible, let's say, non-solution to these requests? So there's a big, let's say, media or there's a big public push for AI ethics. The, the, the tech community complies, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're shipping work through mm -hmm. the back door into countries where that, that isn't so, so much of an issue. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think it's an issue. And um, I think, you know, there needs to be some level of accountability on um, companies if they're headquartered in one area of the globe to, you know, have consistent practices everywhere else. So there's definitely been, you know, incidents of sort of um, ethics dumping where um, companies will develop their systems in countries with a lot more lax privacy regulation to then introduce them once these systems have been finalized into areas with much stricter global regulation. Um, and it's definitely um, an issue that um, is of much concern and um, yeah, I think, you know, you can't necessarily get it. We, we should stop these companies from getting away with it because it doesn't necessarily, I think um, sometimes the argument is that, oh, it's creating these jobs and, um, but you're sort of introducing um, just more, you, you might be introducing more labor opportunities, but the opportunities you're offering are quite precarious for the workers there. Um, you know, whether it be in Asia or in other Latin America or in Africa. So um, I definitely think that um, there should be, you know, incentives to stop this sort of beta testing and ethics dumping elsewhere in the in the global south. Mm. Uh, Alex and Reed, thank you so much for, for joining us, for, for sharing your, your knowledge and experience. And uh, we wish you all the best in, in your, your future endeavors. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks.